When I received news of the uh, terrible uh, tragedy in Vegas, I began to wonder what I should be preaching about this coming week, what text I should choose. As I read the text that was planned, I decided I will preach the text that was planned because I think it speaks to our moment. I take this from Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, where we left off last week. And I invite you to read, if you care to, or to listen simply to the Word of God. God will render to each one according to his works. To those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, would you meet us in our word this day? In in our grief, in our frustration, in our anger perhaps, Lord, would you meet us and remind us of who you are? For we need to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. The headline of the Tuesday morning news tribune was very simple. It read... an act of pure evil. I think everyone who heard that could agree with it. Um, thousands who were gathered for a country music concert in a venue in Vegas that actually ended up trapping them there as this man poured out thousands and thousands of rounds down upon these people. We heard it so powerfully in the psalm that was spoken of today. He lay in ambush and the people were struck down. We have 58 candles here to represent those who were, whose lives were snuffed out And of course, beyond that, another 525 plus injured. It's the most, uh, the worst mass shooting in the history, modern history of the United States, eclipsing even the horrible attack that occurred in the Orlando nightclub. And it was an act of pure evil, right? When we read that newspaper headline, we agree. No sane person would disagree, and it cries out for retribution. When the Apostle Paul writes in the words we just heard, there will be wrath and fury and tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. This is one of those times as a nation in which we completely agree. It was an act of pure evil, and it does cry out for God's judgment, doesn't it? But I want to, at the risk of appearing to be disrespectful and maybe even sounding like I'm asking a stupid question, and there's a point to it, I want to ask this. Why was it evil? Who says it was evil? Why are we so sure about how wrong all of that was? Let me remind you that we live in an age of moral relativism. People say things like there is no such thing as objective truth. There are no absolutes. There is no right or wrong. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. You cannot impose your values on me. I cannot impose my values on you. There was a time not very long ago 
when as a culture we agreed on certain eternal, self-evident, shared values. It's why we didn't think twice about carving the Ten Commandments on a, a court, uh, courthouse wall. Because even for ir- irreligious people, there was an acknowledgement that there were certain transcendent truths. Wherever those came from, they were there, and all, we shared them, and it was what made our civil society possible. But not anymore. Now we are told all truth is relative. All morals are relative. All values are relative. The Oxford English Dictionary's word for 2016 was post-truth. And it is defined this way, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So the new standard for reality and morality is emotion and personal opinion. But not this week. This week, even in a culture that is reluctant to label anything wrong, to label anything evil, we had no trouble doing so. And why is that? Why do all of us know that what happened was wrong and deserves judgment? The answer is because God has written his law on every human heart, which is what Paul goes on to say in the next part of his passage, if you want to continue on in chapter 3, verse 1. He writes, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, that's non-Jews, who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse, or even try to excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I shared with you last week that the church to whom Paul was writing in Rome was a divided church. On the one hand, you had Jewish believers who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And they were the ones who came with the great possession of the law of God. The uniqueness of the Jewish people was that God had given them his law, handed it to them and said, this is the way that I want you and the rest of the world to live. If you will live this way, you will live well. So half of the church was made up of these people who had the law, the Torah. The other half was made up, though, of Gentiles who came from a culture that is frankly very much like ours where everyone defined their own morality, made up their own rules, made up their own religions even. And really, when you look at it, you would have thought, that's not a level playing field. That's not fair. The Jews had God's law, and the Gentiles did not. So obviously, the Jews are going to be in a position to know God, to understand God, and to to make him more happy, to please God more. But that's not what Paul says at all. First of all, he says that every human being has the law of God written on their hearts, even the Gentiles, which would have been horrifying for the Jews to hear. 
The Gentiles may not have the Torah, they may not have the Jewish law, but God has left his fingerprints on every soul, an awareness of the holiness of God that is woven into our spiritual DNA so that every human being has some understanding of right and wrong, good and evil. Not enough to save, but enough to poke, to prod, to to, to bring about a sense of conscience. And then here's the second shocking thing that Paul says. And by the way, no one has kept that law. No one has kept that law. Everyone is guilty of breaking God's law. The Jews who have the law in hand, the Gentiles who have the law in heart, everyone has, stands accused because no one keeps the law of God. As horrific as this shooting was, as often is the case in these kinds of catastrophes, we have glimpses of good. Wasn't it inspiring to see the camera footage from body cams being used for for the purpose that was used this time? And it showed our first responders running into the hail of bullets while others were running away. Wasn't it inspiring to hear of heroes, many of whom were ex-military, who were covering others who were under attack with their own bodies? who were placing their own fingers into the bullet holes to stanch the flow of blood, and who carried the wounded to safety and then returned to the field of fire again and again and again that others might be set free. It it is inspiring, wasn't it, to see the most and the best and the most courageous instincts of humanity on display in a time like that. So there's something redeeming about that. Here's another redeeming feature of this tragedy. For a moment, the world sees things more clearly. The foolishness of moral relativism is set aside for the hogwash that it is. For a moment, everyone universally and without apology calls this act what it was, evil. They speak the word sin. For the moment, we acknowledge the truth of God's law that is written in every human heart. And in such a time when evil is so blatant, what the Bible says about God's wrath and judgment suddenly makes a little more sense to us. See, we proper Presbyterians, we modern-day Christians, we squirm under the language of wrath and judgment. We don't like that language very much. It doesn't seem very welcoming and friendly until this happens. And then we want God to be wrathful because we feel deeply the rage at the injustice of all that has occurred. We want God to bring judgment because this act deserves judgment. We want this person to be held responsible for what he has done. And we want to believe that someday, somehow, a righteous God will set all things to account, will make all things right. He will hold into account Hitler and and Stalin and, and Pol Pot and Stephen Pollock. Somehow, suicide seemed a cheap and easy escape for this man. We long for there to be justice in our hearts, right? And if there isn't a final judgment, beloved, if there isn't a day when God will make all things right, then what does that say to the innocent blood of the 58 that cries out for justice? What does it say about every other person who has ever been accused or attacked or betrayed or falsely accused and the perpetrator has gotten away scot-free? What kind of a world will it be? What kind of eternity would it be if evil isn't punished? If they just 
get away with murder. Paul says that God will judge impartially and fairly and justly. And we want that. But we only want that for the other guy. You see, if there are good things, even spiritual good things, that come from a tragedy like this, and I believe there are, there's also a spiritual danger that can arise. And here it is. Everyone who points at the shooter and says, now that's evil. That deserves judgment. Can find false comfort by saying, I would never do something like that. I'm not as bad as that guy. By comparison to him, I'm pretty good. And that is deadly. I want you to take a look at a picture here. I wonder if you recognize the picture of this plant. I know it's going to come up. There we go. You know what that is? You might have seen the news account. It was actually on the TV news in which they announced that this invasive species called giant hogweed had just been discovered in a yard on Soundview in Gig Harbor. And the reason that's significant is this. It is a supremely noxious plant. It's like the devil plant. It's 20 feet tall at its height. Its leaves grow to three feet across. It has huge thorns, purple blotches. It has sap that can spit five feet when you cut it, and it produces blisters and even blindness. And it was discovered on Soundview. I'm so pleased to know that This plant has made its way into the neighborhood of the house that Cindy and I just bought. You you have to believe that the ordinary weeds, that you have to believe that the ordinary weeds breathe a sigh of relief when giant hogweed moves into the neighborhood. Because suddenly dandelions and clover and even blackberries don't look so bad. This other plant is so awful that other less evil weeds can hide under the hogweed safe from view. We humans do the same thing. We point to monsters and say with relief, at least I'm not that bad. We grade on the curve. We hide under the hogweed. And when we do, it is a dangerous moment of spiritual delusion. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount. We think of that as just this wonderful, comforting message. As a matter of fact, it was a, it was a hard word that Jesus delivered because he destroyed the self-delusion of, of the people. He said, you know, if you have hatred in your heart, it, you might as well have murdered the person you hate. He said, if you, it's not enough that you don't commit adultery. If you have lust in your heart towards another, you might as well have done it because it's a matter of the heart. In other words, Jesus says, the standard for your behavior is not how much better you are than really horrible human beings. The standard for your behavior is how far short you fall of God's perfect holiness. The four most disturbing words that the Jewish readers would have come upon in Paul's text that I just read would have been these. God shows no partiality. That is a hard thing for the chosen people to hear. Isn't that what chosen means? 
that they're kind of special, set aside. It would be hard for the Jew to hear God shows no partiality. What the, he was telling him is that that means that every person, the worst person by human standards as well as the best, the hogweeds and those who hide under their cover, those who carry God's law in their hands as well as those who have them written on their heart, everyone will be judged fairly and impartially by a just God. And honestly, that is not good news because every one of us, we are told, falls short of the righteousness of God, that holy standard. But beloved, there is good news here and it's tucked into the last line of the text that I read. When Paul looks forward to a day of judgment when, according to my gospel, he says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There are two things that are remarkable about this verse. First of all, he says judgment is part of the gospel. You see that? When according to my gospel, my good news, God judges. Judgment is part of the gospel. And on the face of it, that makes no sense to us. Judgment sounds like anything but good news. But you cannot understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of our salvation in Christ, unless you understand how stark is the bad news, how low we had fallen, how helpless was our estate. The news that every human being falls short of God's glory, that God does not grade on the curve, that is actually good news, that he will judge impartially and fairly because unlike other humans, God knows our secrets. That's what he says. He knows what is really going on inside our hearts. And we may fake each other out. Unless we are monstrous, we may be able to hide behind a mask of religiosity and pretense. But one day, God will sweep all of that aside. Even that isn't very good news. But here it is. The good news comes in the very last words, the three words of this text. God judges the secrets of our hearts by Christ Jesus. Would you say those three words? By The remarkable punchline is this. Jesus Christ himself will be our judge. Jesus Christ himself will be our judge. Think of that. The one who hung on the cross. The one who cried out on our behalf, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they are doing as they were killing him. As we were killing him. The one that we call Savior... He is our judge. Every time something horrible happens like what happened this week, it raises the same questions. Where is God, right? Where is God? Why would God allow such evil to happen if he is a good and powerful God? And I I would add, every religion has to deal with that question. That is not a question that is just laid at our doorstep. Every world religion is going to have to come to grips with the issue of of evil in the world. Theodicy, it is called. And it's a tough one, I grant you that. Here's the most important part of our response, I think. We don't have the answer to why, to the why of evil. Someday perhaps, and then we probably won't care. We don't have the answer to why God allows evil to continue. But what we have is a God who has entered into the evil and brokenness of our world. No other religion's God has ever done such a thing. Our God looked down upon the evil and the suffering of this world and he said to his only beloved son at his side from all of eternity, he said, you, will you go? Will you go and save my people? And so Jesus leaves the glory of heaven, the glory of his presence, the eternal presence with his father. He comes to earth and he became one of us. He entered deeply into the suffering of his people. 
He knows what it's like to be at the hands, at the mercy of a monster. He knows what it is like to suffer and to have his life taken from him. He did that for us. He took upon himself every penalty that we deserve to deliver us from evil. That's the Christian answer to this question. Jesus is the Savior judge before whom every human being will one day stand. Everyone. And in this moment of mercy, he whispers to us, don't point at the monster. I know who you are. I know what you have done. I know the secrets of your heart. And I still love you. Will you let me save you? In a moment, we will pray. We will pray for those who lost their lives. We will pray for those who are fighting for their lives. We will pray gratitude for the heroes who, like Jesus, laid down or were willing to lay down their lives to to protect others. We will pray God's justice to be done in the face of evil. But at the end, we will also pray the prayer that Jesus taught us, the prayer where where we ask for forgiveness even as we learn to forgive others, where we ask for God's righteous kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth, not just someday. You're going to hear a beautiful song that calls us to that longing that his will would be done. And I invite you as you listen to it to lay your own heart before your judge who would rather be your savior, Jesus Christ.